Morning. Y'all can have a seat. Uh, today we will be taking a break from Proverbs and we'll be looking at the statements that Jesus makes from the cross as we get ready for Good Friday and ultimately Easter. Um, if you're your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. Uh, we'll go ahead and pray and dig on in. Uh, King Jesus, you came into Jerusalem as you had promised. You came to save. You came as Messiah. You came as the King. You came in fulfillment of Zechariah and countless other prophecies. You came to save us from ourselves, to liberate us from our sin, to make us part of your people, to make a way for us to know God and to restore the kingdom. I pray today as we enter into your word that, that we would know how present you are with us. I pray as we, as we dig in here now, Lord, you would bless this time that we would know You more through it, that we would know You more deeply, and that the truth of who You are and what You did on Your cross for Your glory and to save people like us from ourselves, that, that, that each one of these statements would be another log on our hearts as our hearts burn with passion for You and who You are and as we live to enjoy You and to glorify You. Lord, as we look to Your cross, the center of human history, we know how good and how holy and how right and how glorious You are. We know our great and desperate need for You. Uh, we would feel it in our bones, not only that we need You, but this world needs You. We'd be spurred Excuse me. We'd be spurred to worship you more passionately. We'd be spurred to help other people love you more deeply. We'd be spurred to tell more people about who you are in this world that needs you so bad. Lord, let us not forget that every Sunday as we gather, this is a holy endeavor. As I attempt to open your word and we attempt to hear from you, but we know you're present. We're not just trying. We know you're with us. You're present with us. You're moving in our lives. And so I pray you would bless this time that we have together and that we would live for your glory and our joy. In your name, Jesus Christ, amen. All right, so as we get ready for Easter, we look to the cross of Jesus Christ. And as we look to Easter, we look to really what is not just the center of the Christian narrative, uh, not just the story, uh, what's at the center of Christian belief, uh, not just what's at the center of Christian doctrine. We look to Easter, we look to the cross of Jesus Christ and see what's not only at the center of human history, but what is indeed at the center of cosmic history. That God saving people like us to His glory to our joy, to know Him more deeply through His cross, the plan that God made before the foundations of the earth to send His Son to be the just and the justifier so that people like us could be redeemed by God's grace and God's mercy to know Him, to love Him, to enjoy Him, and to worship Him forever. As Jesus puts everything back the way it's ultimately supposed to be, that as we look to the cross, this is not an add-on. This is the center. This is the good news at the center of what we call redemptive history. God made everything good. We ultimately broke it. He made a promise to fix it. And Jesus came to, did that, to do that. And now we live in the now and not yet kingdom. The kingdom of God is now and the kingdom of God is coming because Jesus is coming again. And Jesus is going to put this world back the way it's supposed to be where we who have been redeemed by Him will live with Him the way things are supposed to be forever. And as we look to the center of the story, I think few things tell the story of the cross better than Jesus' own words. If you'd go with me to John, we're going to hop around a little bit, but if you'd start with me uh, in John in 19, 
We'll start in verse 23. I'll, I'll read it and then we'll begin to unpack it. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said one to another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, and we'll look at this in a minute, this is Psalm 22, 18. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which is John the Beloved who wrote this particular gospel, He's a humble guy and doesn't use his own name. How about that? When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. I think this is one of the most amazing little verses as we look to life as the people of God. It says this, And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing all that was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Now this, this section is something that, that through the course of church history, people said, look, this is, this is the beginning of the church. And I think there's some, some sense of that. You know, you get, you get Jesus, disciple, taking Jesus mother in to be his own uh, in this time uh, in first century. This is Jesus. This is her oldest boy. It's his responsibility as a, in a very human way to take care of his mother. Uh, we don't hear about Joseph, his adopted father, at all at this point in time in the story, which leads me to believe, though it's not in the text, so I'm being careful, he's likely passed away at this point in time. That means Jesus' mom, because of his crucifixion in an earthly way, would be left destitute. But even on the cross, says to his beloved disciple John, take care of her. Take her into your home. Be a son to her the way I'm supposed to be a son to her. Now this is fascinating to me because I don't think what's at the core here is the beginning of... I, again, I think it's, there's hints of the church. But what I think we see here and why these two verses sit together is that we cannot forget the reality that Jesus was fully human. So in the last part, the last major section of church history, the 20th century, uh, as evangelical Christians, we spent so much time defending the divinity of Christ that sometimes we forget that Jesus was fully human, that God himself entered into human history, had flesh and blood like you and me, had a mama, Right? I mean, this, this blows my mind. Jesus had a mother. And if you look at the scene, what we're looking at here, so Jesus is now crucified on the cross. Jesus, who fed 5,000 people, they're not there. He fed other multitudes, 3,000 people, they're not there. Crowds followed him, they're not there. Those who were saying, Hosanna, our king, they're not there. The lepers he healed, they're not there. The blind who can see, they're not there. The multitudes who had the good news of the kingdom of God preached to them, they're not there. The 72 he sent out from town to town in pairs, they're not there. The 12 are not there. Peter, the three, the inner three. He's got three, twelve, seventy-two. Peter, James, and John. James isn't there. And Peter's straight up denounced him at this point in time. Jesus is on the cross with his mom.
with his mom's sister, Mary Magdalene, and John. And there our Savior sits. Excuse me. Um, <clears throat> go with me to uh, Psalm 69. This is his reference. Psalm 69. I'll start in 19. I think you have 21 on the screen. <sighs> you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Verse 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. After this, Jesus, knowing all that was finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of hyssop, or pardon me, a jar full of sour wine stood there. Now, when we think sour wine, this is a drink that was typical of the Roman soldiers. This is water mixed with vinegar. When it says sour wine, we're not talking about bad table wine. We're talking about water mixed with vinegar because the water was so bad. You see wine all over the Bible. You see sour wine in a few places. The, water, the drinking water is not very drinkable. And so it's, don't think wine, think vinegar. It's vinegar mixed with water. A jar full of sour wine stood, so, stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch. It's interesting that John pays attention to this. Hyssop's not all that uncommon in the ancient Near East. But in Exodus 12, 22, it's the branch that the Israelites are instructed that when they take the Passover lamb and they take the blood from the Passover lamb and they dip a hyssop in the blood that they paint that blood over their doorposts to mark them as the people of God so that God passes over their homes on the night of Passover. The lamb dies so the son doesn't have to in the home. Jesus dies so we don't have to. It's interesting that John in this moment sees this thing and makes a connection so much so that he goes out of his way to say, this is a hyssop branch. He's drawing this connection. This is, this is here for us to see. This is the Lamb of God. This is what John the Baptist said. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John is putting it together in this moment. It is a moment of clarity, I think, for John and why he even records it here. Particularly as he's reflecting on everything back as he's writing this gospel. A jar full of sour wine stood there so that he put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. These two statements, the one about his family and the, this I thirst statement. He's thirsty. He's been up all night. They've done horrible things to him. They've probably beaten him beyond recognition. And he's thirsty. Not only is he thirsty and been through this horrible, horrible ordeal. Your throat is parched. All you want is a little cold water. And the Son of God drinks vinegar.
Jesus was a real human. We all have stuff. This, this might not be a day of particular trial for you, and that's fine. You don't have to make that up. But we all go through this life in a broken world, and we're told that this Jesus, God himself, who entered into human history, is a faithful high priest who had to be made like his, brother in ev- his brothers in every way. Why? So he can be a faithful high priest to you and I. So he can know what it is to be like you. So that he's not distant God, but faithful priest in your life. This is God who suffered and died for your sin, but also God who lived here on planet Earth so that when you are in the midst of trial, when you are abandoned, when you feel alone, he can say with confidence, I know, I know this is different than any other God, any other religion will propose. This is the God who can say to you in your trial and your suffering, I know. I know. Go with me to Luke 23. He's not just human. Luke 23, I'll be starting in 32. I think you have 34 up on the screen. Two others who were criminals. So he's not really alone, right? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the Skull, Calvary, Golgotha, Calvary whatever, Calvary Community Church, Calvary Fellowship, Calvary, Skull, the place of the Skull, Skull Community Church. We kind of miss the the weight that the brothers and sisters who name their churches these things are trying to capture when they say that. There's a weight to it if they're going to name their church that. And we can almost, it can become almost so easy for us to forget that they're capturing a weight when they choose to name their church that. They're putting it and pointing it to the cross. And, and may God bless all of them to preach that cross faithfully. There they crucified him. And the criminals on one side right and one side on his left and Jesus said Father forgive them they know not what they do and again we hear this they're gambling for his clothes and they cast lots to divide his garments and the people stood by watching now, now these are the people that the son of God just said Father forgive them they know not what they do right and they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There is also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Some irony. mocking the king of the Jews by calling him the king of the Jews, right? Not only is he fully human, he's fully God. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus looks out on this scene. The only innocent man who ever lived is being crucified as a criminal. And that man, God himself, the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Here in Washington, we take apples, put them in the cider press, we press them down. And if you were just to look at the pulp, you would say, those apples are destroyed. But what comes out of the apples? Apple juice. Cider. Sweet. Special, even. I mean, we kind of live in a grocery store world where we get used to having things like maple syrup and apple cider or whatever it might be. But as Jesus is crushed, what comes out of him is not bitterness. As Jesus is, is just... Experiencing the cross. 
sweetness comes out of his mouth as he's being killed. You want to know that he's divine? Divinity comes out of his mouth. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You want to know that he's divine? Look to the cross. Look to his response. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We'll keep reading here in Luke. So now this is our scene, right? Somebody gets it. Somebody picks up on it. Somebody smells the sweet aroma of divinity. And who is it? One of the criminals. 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. Not this one, sorry. Saying, you are not the Christ. It's the other one. Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sense of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. We don't know if they're friends. We don't know if they've been in prison together. We don't know if they've been in cahoots as criminals. But what he's saying is, you know I belong here. You know you belong here. And you and I both know this guy doesn't belong here. Not this guy. Not this one. They might not see it, but he in this moment sees it. And what does he say? But this man has done nothing wrong. No thing wrong. Jesus did nothing wrong. No wrong. Ever. Ever. He probably does not understand how profound his own statement is in this moment. He does not understand how profound it is for him to say, this man has done nothing And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This guy's seen beyond the veil. Because he knows how this is going to end up for Jesus. And he doesn't, I, don't, I don't even think he fully grasps what's going on. But in this moment, he gets who Jesus is. He knows he's the Messiah. He, he knows. Right? Truly I say to you today, Truly, this is Jesus, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise? This guy's just asking for Jesus to throw him a bone. Right? He, remember me when you're in your kingdom. I don't... I don't we, we can't go further into the psychology of this criminal who's dying. We just can see his very words. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Do you believe you, as a person, can be forgiven for all of your sins and all of your wrongs and not do anything to earn it? Do you believe, you personally, as a child of God, if you are a Christian, or the possibility of this if you're not, could possibly be forgiven for your sins without making the list of people you need to make amends to, getting down off the cross, going out, finding those people, and saying you're sorry? As Christians, we don't make amends. We don't ask for forgiveness. We don't apologize so that well, God will love us. We do it because we see what He's done on the cross for guys just like Him and people just like us. The reason we ask for forgiveness is based on how forgiven we have been. The reason we extend forgiveness is because we understand how forgiven Jesus has been of us and all our iniquity. Do you believe that you can be forgiven by God based solely on His work on the cross and the power of His resurrection. Because that's the Gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. This is all you have in this moment. He's on the cross next to Jesus. He's not getting down. He's not making the list. He's not knocking on doors. He's not joining a church. He's not putting on a Sunday best. 
is not having a reformed life. Now, you and I are not on the cross right now, which means you and I have this chance to repent and turn to Jesus and live a life while we have breath in our lungs to seek after him with everything we've got. He doesn't have it. All he gets to do is die. And yet Jesus is going to say, today you will be with me in paradise. There's a severity to grace like this. There's a seriousness to call this the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If we take the gospel seriously, we understand that it's not the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world plus all the stuff we do after we meet Jesus. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, period. And we live in response to that. We live lives seeking sanctification, seeking to grow in the gospel, seeking to get after Him. Because if that's not how you respond to this, I think you probably need to hear it again. Because this is the gospel and this is the good news. Go with me to Mark 15. Pardon me, 16. Nope, 15. Starting in 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene. Now here's where it pays, Anchor Church, to read your Bible slowly. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country. Now why is this next verse here? Have you ever wondered this question when you're reading your Bible? And they compelled a passerby. First of all, why do we get his name? Why do we get his city? And why do we get the names of his sons? And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry the cross. This is an eyewitness account. This is Mark's gospel. It is the record of Peter's eyewitness telling of what happened this day. What does Mark know? He knows who Simon of Cyrene is. Why does he know that? Because Alexander and Rufus are Christians. There's really, really solid evidence. And if you want to read a book on it, Richard Bauckham, who I get this data from, has written an amazing book where he points out all this stuff that indicates it's called Jesus and Eyewitnesses. You can remember it that way. Why would you write this? So many people go without a name. It's so that when you read Mark's gospel, you look at it and say, I'm going to Cyrene, and I'm looking for Alexander and Rufus. And when I get to him, I say, did your dad carry the cross of Jesus Christ? And they say, yes, sir, he did. Okay, that happened. They're Christians. They're believers. The church record seems to indicate that they at least become Christians. Uh, we don't know about their dad, but I'm, I'm willing to say that after what happened here this day, again, it's not in the text, and so we're, we're doing a little, we're being careful. Got to be careful. Okay, I always want to be careful. I don't know if Simon's a Christian or not. I think it's very fascinating that his brother, his sons, are recorded in church history as being Christians, and I think it's very fascinating that he went out of his way to say his name. These authors want you to know that these are eyewitness accounts. Continue, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, again, which means place of the skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they offered, uh, pardon me, and they crucified him and divided him with garments. By the way, that's a different wine. That's what they offer to people on their way to kind of dull the senses a little bit. And they crucified him and divided him with garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which each should take. I think it's interesting they all point out this horrible scene about them gambling for his clothing. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription in the charge against him read, the king of, uh, the king, uh, pardon me, I'm losing my place, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one to his right, one to his left. And those who passed by diverted him, wagging their heads and saying, ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from that cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Jesus, if you just jump through our hoops, then we'd believe you. 
If you just do what we want you to do, show us the power we want to see, then we'll believe you. Again, that would put them in the spot of God. God has revealed himself the way God chooses to reveal himself. And he doesn't need to impress any human being. It's not. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. 33. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lema Shabbatani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Go with me to Psalm 22. Verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's an intentional rabbinic device. When one piece of a verse is quoted, that you're supposed to look back into your Bible and see the rest of the context. Why? I'll show you. Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. Yet you are wholly enthroned on the praises of Israel. In our fathers, uh, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trust and were not put to shame. He knows who God is. God is a God who saves. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breast. Oh, you, on you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravaging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potter's head. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You laid me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. The company of evildoers encircles me. Hear this, 17. They have pierced my hands and feet. Crucifixion hadn't been invented yet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, listen. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. 21, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Rescued, this word in Hebrew, is unmistakably going to be translated into English in the past tense. It's as good as done. Rescued. Right? The whole thing must be taken. Because when we look at this statement, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And we look to this text, I think we see this horrible reality of the cross in this one moment. He's forsaken. The cup of wrath you and I deserve for our sins is being poured out on Him. And yet this is Jesus who in the garden said, not my will, your will. The one who said, if there's any other way, but, but if there isn't, I'm doing it. This is the one who told Pilate, if I wanted to call down angels right now and end this thing, it would be over. This is Jesus who faced off the devil in the desert for 40 days and continued to quote to him Deuteronomy until tell him, tell him, he told him to kick rocks and get out of there. 
This is Jesus who has stayed the course. And as the cup of wrath is being poured out on Jesus and the business end of God's justice for my sin and for your sin is put upon Him because He's just and the justifier, it is also God who is approving of His Son who in Philippians 2 we are told would set aside His divine rights and enter into human history dying on the cross for our sins. He answers him. He comes for him, right? In 21, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. It's a both and. There's, there's a both and at the cross and the forsakenness really brings out the reality of the wrath and the price that's being paid for you and me. But it's not just about wrath. It's about wrath and redemption. This is the place where God's justice is displayed, but also His love is displayed. He was forsaken for you and for me and for His glory. That you and I could be called children of God. Go with me back to Luke in 23 and 46. Uh, We're in 44. It was now about the sixth hour. There was darkness over the whole land. Till the ninth hour. Well, the sun's light had faded, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. As Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, dies to pay the price for our sins, the Holy of Holies is this place in the center of the temple. This is a change in the administration of the, God, the way God relates to people. And God is the one who orchestrates it. Before this, God is holy and we are not. So there are separations between us and God. And in the temple and in the tabernacle, those are actually physically represented in different ways. And one of those is the holy of holies, that the high priest could only go once a year to offer sins first, sacrifice for sins first for himself and then for the people. He goes in once a year, once a year to offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And he's the only guy that gets to go into the, the, the Holy of Holies is where the tabernacle sits. Here's uh, Tabernacle 101 in 30 seconds. Uh, in the tabernacle sits the Ark of the Covenant. In the Ark of the Covenant sits the Ten Commandments. And God chose in his grace and mercy to manifest his glory in a particular way there at the temple. And one guy, one time a year, gets to go in. Jesus comes, pays the price for our sins. He loved us before we were lovely. The curtain is torn. Why? Because there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. This is a new administration. God is relating to his people in a new way because of the cross of Jesus Christ and the tearing of the curtain, which it just says it tore. It doesn't say the high priest was upset and went up. God tears it through Jesus' flesh and blood and the payment for our sins. You and I are sons and daughters of God Most High. He died so we can live. This is a horrible thing to look at the cross, but really good news for us. that This represents because of His cross and because of His life, you and I have full access to God through Jesus Christ. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Job was a righteous man who at some point in time stops trusting God. Abraham, a pagan, called out, In Genesis 12, Abraham, pack up your stuff. We're going. Where are we going, God? Somewhere else. Let's go. You got it. It's told that the nations will be blessed through him. Loses faith in that plan. Makes his own plan with Ishmael versus Isaac, God's plan. Moses, look at all the leaders. David, they doubt, they wander They wander from God's trajectory and His plan to redeem and restore all things. Peter. Jesus tells him he's going to go to the cross. He says, no, no, no. And what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. John the Baptist. Should we look for another? Are you the one? Should we look for somebody else? Thomas. Only when I see 
the nails, the nail marks. We could take these guys who we could kind of look as, at as titans of the faith and we can see where they doubted in God's goodness and in God's plan and God's trajectory to redeem all things. Adam and Eve doubted God's plan, made their own plan. Who didn't? Jesus. The trust and the love. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We'll finish in John. Starting in 29. No, pardon me, 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. This is one word in Greek. He would have been speaking Aramaic, so it doesn't totally matter that it's one word in Greek. But it's one very powerful word in Greek. It can mean it's finished. It's a very good translation. It can mean it's fulfilled. It can mean it's come to completion. It can be made, mean that it's paid. And we always want to be careful when we're doing this, not to import meaning that's not there, but I think all of those fit the bill for this particular verse. What's finished? All of it. Everything that needs to happen for you to be called a son or daughter of God Most High. Everything that needed to happen for you to be completely forgiven and completely made right with the God of the universe. Everything that needed to happen so that you would be made new for God's glory. Everything that needed to happen that you would be changed and transformed not just for you, but for Him and for His glory. Everything that needed to happen for His plan that He set forth before the foundations of the earth is accomplished at the cross. Satan is defeated. Sin is defeated. Death is defeated. Jesus wins. Period. No one else gets that but Jesus, by the way, at this moment in history. It's fulfilled. It's finished. It's complete. Everything that needs to happen for you to be bought by the blood of the Lamb and belong to God forever is finished. Everything that needs to happen for God to redeem all things on heaven and on earth unto Himself through His Son is finished. It's finished. Now, of course, the story doesn't stop here. Right? He dies. And he raises from the dead. He raises from the dead. He spends time with his disciples. He lays out the plan. This is the power of the resurrection. It's the cross and the resurrection because death couldn't hold him and sin couldn't hold him and Satan couldn't hold him. The story doesn't stop here. At Pentecost, God pours His Spirit out on His people and the in-between time of Jesus bringing the, 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 this new reality and this new administration, the way that God is relating to His people is complete. The Spirit is poured out on the people of God and now as Christians we can say that the Old Testament prophecies are true of us, that, we've, that God has taken our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. That, that the Spirit of God has been poured out on us, that if you are a Christian, the Spirit of God indwells you. And that we walk by faith and not by sight. And that we walk by the power of the Spirit. Romans chapter 8 and a bunch of other verses in there too. But we walk by the power of the Spirit, as Romans 8 tells us. Not only that, we now live in the church era. This isn't something for just back then and now we sort of cruise. Between His ascension and His return, you and I are the people of God along with every other Bible-believing, Jesus-loving person on planet Earth. And God is using us to carry this message of His Son to the ends of the Earth, to the nations and our neighborhoods. This is to go out from here to Finney and everywhere. 
And you and I are involved in this plan as carriers of this message and this truth of what happened that day. Right? Oh yeah, he's returning. He's restoring creation. He's putting everything back the way it's supposed to be. And you. He's putting you back the way you're supposed to be. For his glory. Not, not as like a personal project for you to be the best you you can be. But for his glory. He's making you the person you were supposed to be. For his glory and for your joy. And the greatest thing, the greatest moment, the greatest thing that ever happened to you as you changed to live for His glory and to live happened 2,000 years ago. The greatest thing that ever happened in your life happened 2,000 years ago. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives through me. My life is hid with Him on high. When He died, I died. And now I live because He died. I'm forgiven because He took my sin on my shoulders. Because He rose from the dead and I get to live in the power of the resurrection. I get to live now to enjoy Him. And when we look to the cross, I think it's so important and kind of odd for us. We, we don't do funerals well, right? In 2015, we do memorial service or other like party things. We aren't really wakes. We just kind of hang out. We don't address the fact. I think if we're not careful, Holy Week and even Good Friday as we approach it can become this funeral where we, where we think we're really supposed to feel very sad and make sure we're very contrite and we, we don't wash our faces as the Pharisees did and we make sure everybody knows how horrible it is. The reality is the cross is horrible. It's no laughing matter. It's no joke. It's very serious and it should permeate all of our life. However, we know how the story ends. We don't think he's in the ground and then we do Saturday all bummed out. Yeah, it's serious. Good Friday's serious. A sermon focusing on the things that Jesus is saying from the cross is serious, but also we need to take serious the celebration we get to have in response to the reality of everything he's done. You're forgiven. And it's finished. He cried out for them and I think for us Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Right? It's finished. And we're alive because He's alive. And we get to celebrate because of what, have he's, what He's done. And so as we look so seriously at the reality of the grace and the mercy and the justice and the wrath of the cross, we respond in worship. Because how can you not look to that man on that cross and not worship? Not only that, how much fuel on the fire for discipleship this should be for us. How much should this drive us not only to love Him more, but help each other to love Him more. And because this is the center of everything, because this is the center of human history, because this is where it is all at, how much should this drive us to tell people this truth? It's finished. The message of the Gospel is not reform. The message of the Gospel is be forgiven and live. Turn to Jesus and live and celebrate and enjoy and glorify God with every ounce of your being from now until the end of eternity, which doesn't end forever. It's life eternal in duration and quality. And it starts now because of this cross. In a, in a moment here, Conrad's going to come back up and we'll sing songs to Jesus, God himself. And we'll get up and we'll take communion. And when we take communion, we remember this reality. The Lamb of God, his blood shed and body broken for our sins so that we could live. And so we take our sin really seriously. We take our rebellion against God and our unbelief and our self-glorification very seriously because that's why He was on the cross. And yet at the same time, at the same time, we remember that on that cross, just like that hyssop cleanse, painting the blood over our doorway, we're forgiven, we're redeemed, 
We're blood-bought. We're owned by God. We're the people of God. We're the children of God. We're men and women made new because of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we consider our sin very seriously. We take it seriously because my sin gets in the way of me living for God's glory. And so we turn from our sin and we repent. We turn to Jesus. We turn to life. We turn to joy. And so we take our sin seriously, but then when we come up, we come up to take this remembering that His body was broken and blood shed for you and for me. And now we get to live. And we stand up and we sing. This is, this is Easter, man. This is the deal. So the logistics here are fairly simple. We have... Um, Regular bread, we have gluten-free little wafers, we have wine, we have juice, and we have a basket for the, work, for the offering for the work of the ministry. Um, I will pray for us, and then we'll sing and celebrate this reality. King Jesus, Just as those who are mocking you, we once didn't know who you are. Just as those who mockingly called you the king of the Jews, but thought you weren't, we too once thought you weren't. But you are, and we confess it now. Your cross is the power to save. Your resurrection gives us life. You have gone, and we know you will return. We know that this isn't just a hobby, this isn't just a, a pious exercise, but that we are your people living for your glory, seeking to know you, love you, and bring fame to your holy and precious name, Jesus. I pray that that would be our aim as your people, that your name would be lifted up, Jesus. That you would move in the city. You would save people. You'd move in this church. You'd fill us with your spirit. You'd help us to love you, love each other, and love Seattle. Help us to love Finney Ridge. Help us to love Ballard and every other neighborhood here more and more and more and more to pour ourselves out, to give of ourselves, to help other people follow you, to die to ourselves and to live to you and to live in the joy and the grace and the mercy you provide us that we would glorify your holy name as your people. Please empower us, Jesus, to do this. May we live for the glory of God the Father uh, in Your name and by the power of the Spirit for Your glory and for our joy. In Your name, Jesus Christ, Amen.